This is Minda Wilson with Urgent Care, and I'm uh, very happy to bring on Joanna Morales of Triage Cancer. She and her sister founded the organization. We're very excited to learn more about it. Welcome, Joanne. Thank you so much for having me. So how did you start the organization? Well, that's actually a very interesting question, and it was sort of a long and windy road. But ultimately, um, Monica, my sister, and I are both cancer rights attorneys by training. And we've spent a large portion of our legal career teaching people how to navigate the legal issues that come up as a result of a cancer diagnosis. And those legal issues are things you don't typically think of as legal issues, like access to health care and navigating your insurance coverage and being able to take time off. And we had been speaking in the cancer community on these topics for many years and ultimately decided that we wanted to start an organization that focused on providing that education and taking it into communities that don't necessarily have access to that education for a variety of reasons. So when you were, when you were going to law school, uh, not a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to become a cancer rights attorney. You know, they, so what brought you to that? So when I was in high school and college, I worked part-time um, and eventually full-time at a cancer center for a psychosocial care program. And I learned a lot about the issues that patients were facing outside of just the medical aspects of their diagnosis. And ultimately, when I got to law school, I learned about the many different types of areas of the law that can have an impact. And it was an interesting way to sort of meld what I was learning about in school with what I was experiencing uh, in my work life. And it wasn't a path I sought out. I didn't go to law school thinking I was going to be a cancer rights attorney. Um, it sort of found me. Uh, and uh, you know, 25 years later, I'm still working in the cancer community. And I think that um, the work that I get to do every day is very rewarding because I see how it can help people every single day. So I have a cancer diagnosis. Uh, I come to you and I say to you, what, what are my rights? I mean, what are the things that people would not know that you, you give them, you know, that you tell them about that they're, they may be entitled to? So most of the time when someone comes to me, they're coming with a specific question and they're already in a crisis moment. But I think if it were an ideal world, every individual who is diagnosed with a cancer would get some basic information about what their rights are. And it's sometimes overwhelming to think about when first diagnosed because there's so much more that patients have to think about but understanding their rights in the workplace, understanding their ability to either work through treatment or to take time off and not lose access to their job and their income, depending on what they're able to do and what they want to do. Mm -hmm. um, I think accessing health insurance and making sure that you have the right type of insurance for you is incredibly important. Um, and then if someone does need to take time off work, understanding how they can access disability insurance so they're not losing all of their income and wages. Um, and ultimately, all of those things together really have the greatest impact on financial toxicity. So we hear this term talked about 
And most of the time, people are focused on the high cost of care and the out-of-pocket costs for drugs. But ultimately, if we can make sure that people have adequate health insurance, we can minimize some of those out-of-pocket costs. And if we can teach people about how to be able to keep their job or to replace their wages, then that can have a huge impact on someone's financial health as well. Right, because it's not just taking care of the illness. The, the, as you pointed out, the financial toxicity, because people will you know, invest everything in trying to help a loved one survive. Absolutely. And it's, we want to try to make sure that people understand their health insurance coverage so that they're not paying bills that they are actually not responsible for, that they have adequate health insurance. And so when I say that, I mean many people are picking the plan based on their premium amount, what they pay each month for the plan, but they don't understand that those plans come with the highest out-of-pocket costs. Someone who is going to receive a lot of medical care during the year, paying a little bit more in premium can save you thousands of dollars in out-of-pocket costs by the end of the year. And most people don't really understand that that's the way insurance works, and they aren't making good choices up front. So, so a lot of time educating people about how to do that. So now, though, with the with the new administration, um, it looks like there are some changes uh, that are coming down through the pipeline. Uh, will self-employed individuals be able to get insurance if they uh, if they have a cancer diagnosis? Are they able to? Will they be able to change to a higher? Uh, premium policy if they need more care? So for now, there are still protections for people with pre-existing medical conditions, which is actually the large majority of the population. Most of us have some type of medical condition, whether it be high blood pressure, or like high cholesterol, or allergies even. Those can all be considered pre-existing conditions. And so the Affordable Care Act has protections for people with pre-existing conditions to make sure that people can still access health insurance coverage. Now, there have been a lot of proposals over the last year to change that. None of them have been successful to date. Um, But where we're seeing the latest changes to our healthcare system is in the expansion of short-term health insurance plans, which actually don't have to comply with the consumer protections in the ACA. So these short-term health insurance plans can be really attractive to consumers because they're cheap, their monthly premium is low, but ultimately someone with a pre-existing condition can still be denied coverage for those plans, and they can face exclusion periods for a period of time where you won't be covered for your pre-existing condition. And then in a worst-case scenario, those plans can also exclude coverage for certain types of care. So they can say things like, we're not covering any chemotherapy, or we're not covering prescription drugs, or we're not covering mental health care. So what's really scary about these plans for the cancer community is that they're hard to to know that that's what you're buying, and you don't necessarily know where the gaps in coverage are until you're in a position to need that coverage. Right. So you may get a diagnosis 
look into not have coverage, look into a short-term plan, pay for the plan, and then find out none of your care is covered and you're still obligated to pay for the plan. Exactly. And so we just want consumers to be really aware of these plans and where the potential dangers are. Um, Now, for some people who are healthy and are not getting medical care or feel like they don't need, you know, adequate coverage, then these plans might be a good option to just cover, you know, regular doctor's visits. So we just want people to really understand the differences in the options that are out there and, and where the consumer protections are. So if you if you're an employed person and you get a diagnosis with cancer and then you go on disability, are are is the company required to maintain your insurance policy? Do you go on COBRA? What happens with that? So it actually really depends on uh, your place of employment and how you're employed. So if you're accessing disability insurance, you could be doing that through a private plan that you've bought yourself from an insurance company, you could have a disability plan that's offered to you by your employer, um, like as an employee benefit, the same way you get health insurance maybe from your employer. Um, And then you could also potentially be getting state disability insurance if you Mm -hmm. live in one of the five states or Puerto Rico that actually offers that coverage. Um, And then there's the federal long-term disability programs. So most of the time when you are accessing disability insurance, your job is actually not protected. So disability insurance is just about replacing the wages. Now, in some circumstances, depending on how long you're on disability benefits, the Family and Medical Leave Act might protect your job um, up to 12 weeks. Uh, The Americans with Disabilities Act might provide you with some protections, and then If your employer has a company policy, that might be the most useful to people because sometimes employers will say, well, if you're on disability benefits up to six months or a year, we'll hold your job for you for that period of time. So if you're unable to work, though, um, then do you become responsible for paying your health insurance? Does it go into COBRA? How does does that work, you know, if you have to leave your job because you're sick? So if the FMLA applies to you after the 12 weeks um, of leave, if you're still not able to go back to work and your employer lets you go and you lose access to your health insurance benefits, then you would be eligible for COBRA. So you could be receiving disability benefits to replace your wages and then you would have to pay COBRA premiums to keep your health insurance um, that you had when you were working. But now there's some new options in the marketplace Um, to be able to compare your COBRA plan to the marketplace and to see which is actually going to provide you with better coverage um, and potentially be less expensive. So COBRA can be sometimes very expensive, so you can compare that choice to the marketplace. And your choices are going to vary differently depending on what state you live in. So how do people afford all of this? If they're sick and not working, is there a way they can get some of this subsidized? So there are a number of programs that are available. So depending on someone's income level, um, if their income level and assets are low enough, they may be able to qualify for Medicaid in their state to get access to health insurance coverage. 
There are also private organizations and foundations that provide financial assistance for treatment, for prescription drugs, for co-pays, and for health insurance premiums. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we have available on our website at cancerfinances.org. There is a section of financial assistance resources. Um, so the other piece to that is if you are having trouble paying for your medical expenses, there may be some resources available to help pay with some of your daily expenses like childcare, or your utilities, or even your rent or your mortgage. And being able to get assistance with those things can allow you to shift some of the money that you have to be able to pay for your medical expenses. So we really encourage people to think as broadly as possible about the potential types of resources that they might qualify for uh, to be able to manage finances after a cancer diagnosis. But it seems like middle class people get hit the hardest financially because they aren't they may have assets at a certain point um, that they want to hold on to their home, maybe, uh, you know, a, a 401k. But then, um, then by doing that, they lose access to a lot of the benefits that are available. Are there any uh, solutions or suggestions for them? Well, every financial assistance program or government benefit has a different requirement in terms of the assets or the income level that you're allowed to have and still qualify for. So I recommend that people not assume that they don't qualify, but to Mm -hmm. try, because you don't really know until you pursue the options. But for example, with Medicaid, um, a lot of people assume that you can't have a home or a car to be able to qualify for Medicaid, and that's actually not true. So you can have your own home and, and have a car and still be able to qualify for the Medicaid program to get access to health insurance coverage. And if you're in a state where the state actually expanded access to the Medicaid program under the Affordable Care Act, there actually isn't an asset or resource requirement at all. It's just based on income level. So it really expanded access for people in the cancer community to get Medicaid coverage because it's just based on income and it allows you to keep that 401k plan without having to to pull the money out, pay taxes on it, and spend that money in order just to get health insurance coverage. And so it really made it easier for people to access coverage. That's amazing. That's good to know. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, the ACA required all of the states to expand their program. Mm -hmm. um, But because of the Supreme Court decision, it's voluntary for states to do this. So we still have a number of states across the country still haven't expanded their Medicaid program which represent about 5 million people who would have gotten access to coverage but haven't yet because their state hasn't expanded. And and this is still an ongoing issue. In fact, I think there's four different states right now that will will likely have ballot propositions for voters to vote on in their state in November. I I understand there's a big – a certain state's having a big fight because the governor's vetoing uh, legislation passed – uh, and uh, not enacting it. Um, yes, that is true. In terms of understanding insurance policies, people find them very complicated, and oftentimes people are denied care just out of hand. So what what options do they have for 
I mean, and when you're sick, the one thing you really don't have energy for is fighting with your insurance company. You know, you're, you're probably not feeling so well. So what are some of the resources for them to sort of review what's available from their insurance coverage and determine whether or not the insurance company is being fair in their provision of services? So there's actually a number of resources. On our website at triagecancer.org, we have a section on health insurance, and it includes um, educational quick guides, there's webinars, and we even have some animated videos um, that are short four to five minute videos that explain sort of the basics of health insurance and understanding the terms of your policy so that when you go and look at your policy specifically, you can understand what's required. So if your insurance company requires a, pre, a prior authorization or a pre-authorization before you actually get medical care, you need to know that because if you don't get that pre-authorization, then they're going to deny coverage for that care that you're receiving. And your healthcare team can be a great resource of information for that as well. Um, but if for some reason your insurance company does deny your care that your healthcare team is recommending, you can appeal that decision. And sometimes we are a society that tends to take no for an answer. And so we, sometimes we assume when an insurance company says no that we aren't covered for that particular care. But it's important for people to realize that sometimes the system is set up to deny and so to really pursue the care that they feel like they need based on the recommendations of their healthcare team. And the appeals process is important to that. So you can appeal internally through the insurance company, but if they still say no under the Affordable Care Act in every state, there's also an external appeals process where you can go outside of the insurance company to an independent review um, from a healthcare professional who's going to look at whether or not the care that's being recommended is medically necessary for you to receive. And ultimately, if they decide that it is necessary for you to receive that care, the insurance company actually has to cover it and pay for it. So the appeals process is really important for people to know about because it's very underused. Hmm. Are, are there people who help you navigate? Because I find that, you know, the legal legal uh, wranglings are intimidating to most people, filling out paperwork they're unfamiliar with. Are there resources to help people with that? Well, in every state, there is a program in their within their state insurance agency. And that could be the Department of Insurance. Um, every state has sort of a different agency name for that. If you go to our website on the state resources page, it actually lists the agency and the contact information for their consumer department who actually is responsible for the external appeals process and helping consumers navigate through it. Um, but we also have a lot of information about the appeals process so that you can kind of understand where you're headed and the process before you actually contact um, your insurance agency. So I want to take a step back and talk about the people who are the caregivers, because oftentimes when someone's suffering with cancer, there, there, there are people involved in administering care. They're too sick to take care of themselves. And um, those people are on 24-7. Are, are there any resources to help them? 
I think there's a lot of resources in the cancer community to support caregivers. Um, we work with a number of partners in the cancer community that provide great psychosocial care services um, that are listed on our website. We also want to make sure that caregivers understand what their rights are. Uh, so if they need to take time off work um, as a caregiver, there are programs to support them and laws. So the Family and Medical Leave Act provides people who are caregiving with job protection and health insurance protection if you get your health insurance through an employer. Uh, there are a handful of states that also provide paid leave for caregivers who are taking time off. So there's a lot of work in the cancer community to, and outside the cancer community as well, to provide additional laws that provide paid leave protections for caregivers because it's not just the financial toxicity of a cancer diagnosis um, for an individual who's diagnosed, but it's also on the whole family. Um, and caregivers are certainly part of that uh, equation. And if caregivers' income is also being negatively impacted, then that's only exacerbating the problem. And then not only are there uh, protections in terms of work, um, there's a lot of support programs uh, and advice for caregivers in terms of self-care, respite programs in the community, um, and other types of resources available to caregivers. So if, if, if somebody is, um, there, it seems like there's a lot of information, um, a lot of, uh, is there like people to call to maybe talk through this resources for advice or counsel? We actually recommend that people email us, um, but you can certainly call us at well, as well. Um, our email address is info at triagecancer.org, and mm -hmm. our phone number is 424-258-4628. And the reason we actually recommend that people email us is that we are often out in the community providing educational programs, and so we are faster to respond um, to people's questions and needs by email sometimes than we are at returning phone calls. Mm -hmm. and, and just one, one more question about uh, people who are denied care. Um, is it, I, I've been, I've been, I've learned through my own experience that the person who reviews the request for care isn't always a specialist in the field where you're seeking care. So, um, so a cancer diagnosis may be reviewed by an obstetrician who delivers babies. So is there a way that you can, if for medical necessity that you had mentioned before, that you can ensure that your paperwork is properly reviewed by somebody who's knowledgeable in the field? In the internal appeals process with the insurance company, you don't always know the healthcare professional who reviewed your claim. Um, and so you can certainly ask in your internal appeal to have someone who has expertise in your diagnosis um, to review the claim, but ultimately if it's still denied, that's why the external appeals process can be so helpful, is that you mm -hmm. can ensure that someone is looking at the medical necessity based on your diagnosis specifically. And and if somebody's sick and, and is laid off, or if somebody acts as a caregiver and is laid off, do they have any rights of appeal? Uh, uh, you know, if it's, uh, 
if they feel that the termination was uh, a result of their being sick or uh, being uh, involved in caregiving? Absolutely. So if someone feels that they've been discriminated against based on their medical condition or their caregiving status, um, if they're filing a claim under the Americans with Disabilities Act, then it would be a claim with the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. They could file a complaint there. Um, If they're looking at their state law for protection, then they'd look at their state fair employment agency. And again, those the contact information for those agencies is available on our website at triagecancer.org. You know, it's it's been it's been fascinating talking to you, and I'm hoping you'll come back again because there are a lot more things that I'd like to reach out uh, and discuss with you. Um, if people want to reach you, could you give us uh, your contact information again, please? Absolutely. You can email us at info i n f o at triagecancer.org, or you can call us at 424-258-4628, or you can visit our website at triagecancer.org. And I think the important takeaways from today are, if you have cancer, if one of your family members has cancer, that you're responsible for their care. There are resources and uh, opportunities for assistance. It doesn't necessarily have to be the financial death spiral that you think it is. And it doesn't have to be a, a life of filled with denials of care by your insurance company. Uh, triage Cancer is an organization that can help you navigate these problems and can help you uh, if you need assistance. This is Minda Wilson for Urgent Care.